and welcome to Conversing with Nature, a podcast of the Nature-Based Exchange. I'm your host, Liz Fly, with the Nature Conservancy in South Carolina. On each episode, I sit down with an expert or enthusiast who talks about their experiences with nature and passes along some of the best practices that nature has taught them over the years. Through these conversations, we rediscover nature and discover ways that we can apply nature's wisdom to the obstacles we currently face in South Carolina and beyond. Today, I am again joined by Cheryl Kale, Southeast Conservation Associate Director of American Rivers and Vice Chief of the Waccama Indian People. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, you may want to do that first to catch our conversation around growing up surrounded by nature and Cheryl's thoughts on resilience and equity. Cheryl, thanks again for joining me. Can you tell me more about the history of the Waccama Indian People in South Carolina? You know, really especially in relation to this place, this space, the connection with the lands. I think some of our listeners may not know much about South Carolina indigenous groups, both their history and their active presence as you know, personified by you and your work. So my ancestors, they were, I guess, considered nomadic, at least as the term fits academically or anthropologically. But I really think about that is that maybe they weren't nomadic in the sense of they just wanted to pick up and move, but they were responsive to what was happening around them. You know, they paid attention. They had movement from the coast inland during seasonal changes, recognizing that, you know, this is hurricane season. It's probably not a good idea to be on the coast, you know, where where the potential for calamity could happen. A lot of what I have to do when I think about my uh, Waccamaw ancestors is try to connect and say, what would they be doing? How would they think? What were some of the things that is known? And the reason why I'm kind of not skeptical, but I I look at it, written history was written from a male narrative and the majority of the stories I have to pull on those threads from the past to understand my ancestors rather than look at what's written mm. about them. So I don't think nomadic is really a proper term because it almost it's almost in a negative connotation, but I think more of responsive to the environment around them. And I'll give you an example. One of the things that is known is as far as uh, community farming, it was a different type of, of farming, not like plowing a gigantic field and, and doing all of these things that actually degrade the soil and and make crops not yield very well. But it was it was actually looking at we need the soil to have a chance to heal. We need the land to have a chance to heal. You know, you don't keep yeah. continuing to extract because the land is important and it has to have opportunities to, to go through a process of, of kind of regenerating. So that nomadic kind of concept was not because there was this, we're just gypsies or something, something in that context that's used when you hear the word nomadic, but actually responsive and taking cues from nature. 
So as far as where we're at currently in the historic lands of the Demery settlement, which was the last settlement of the Waccamaw in South Carolina, we would still be considered a coastal tribe because it's a coastal area. And we're connected to the rivers. And, you know, of course, with the Waccamaw River name, we were connected with the Waccamaw River. But I think the connection with the PD was even more significant because it expanded up. It also opened up the connection to other tribes and Mm -hmm. probably Waccamaw as well with the North Carolina tribes. The PD, though, historically were interconnected, genealogically connected. And so you see this intermarriage between groups of people from one region to another and moving back and forth and, you know, connected through that, that river, the little PD, as well as the the great PD. But I think in the more recent past, we connected, and I'm saying recent past as in the last maybe 150 years, but the, the Waccamaw are in an area that we've been there for about 200 years, a little over 200 years. And as as community and lands are um, no longer held by family, that causes the community to kind of break up as far as moving away and the opportunities, um, which of course we see that that still plays out today. Younger people leave because they don't have opportunities in the in the community that they're in. And that really speaks to the equity issue. So yeah. that was not something that our people experienced. Equity was not in the frame for how relations were in South Carolina with the indigenous people. We were just actually recognized in 2005. And prior to that, the narrative was that um, there are no Indians in South Carolina, with the exception mm-hmm. of the Catawba, because that is who the federal government said are Indians. So you have this whole community of indigenous people spread throughout the state of South Carolina. And that doesn't make them less indigenous. It just means right. that they've been scattered. So it's um, it's hard to put that into context with the connection with lands because you have to keep going back and back because the connection with lands, it's been so long and you think it's been 300 years. That's a long time to have lost the connection to the lands in a significant way. And then 200 years where there was the really concerted effort to have a community and a settlement And about a hundred years ago, that was fragmented. And then another hundred years later, we're finally being acknowledged that we actually exist. Not as a federally recognized tribe, correct? No, that's a a whole nother lift. So the state actually makes determinations on an entity being an indigenous tribe based on their historical records and familial records. Federal government is a much more stringent process and and the criteria makes it much more difficult, especially, and this is coming from myself and 
nearly every southeastern tribe in the area in the region the documentation the records that are required that makes it nearly an impossible lift i'm hoping next year to go with a couple of the coastal carolina university professors to great britain because mm. there is that time period before the united states became a nation that those records would have been housed in in britain so since we can't seem to locate them here we're we're going to uh peruse through the archives, the British archives. And it's a really huge challenge to to find those written records. And then again, the narrative is from the white male perspective. So you're really having to look. I could see that. And I'm going to ask you later about funding, federal funding in particular. But I guess my question here is one of the benefits of being a federally recognized tribe would be being recognized and being able to receive federal funding. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. I mean, there are certain programs you're still able to access through like HUD, but not necessarily as a a tribe. There are certain things that can happen, but when it comes to like really developing programs, or addressing issues, the funding is not accessible for state-recognized tribes. I've voiced that many times. I understand that there's a specific federal definition of what a tribe is. And if the state tribe does not fall under that, then you know it's another equity issue that needs to be addressed. And some states have actually developed programs that will help state tribes because they recognize that. We haven't had that happen here in South Carolina, although there are are nine tribes currently. It's just not something that has had any traction for the development of funding through the state. If a listener were curious to learn more about these nine state-recognized tribes, where can they go find more information about this? So the the basic information about the tribal entities are through the South Carolina Commission of Minority Affairs, Native American Division. That's accessible at a website. And I'm saying as far as engaging with tribes, you certainly can reach out through the contact information on that website. But it's through powwows, through engaging with the tribal communities at their own cultural events or celebrations. And these are open to the public. A lot of people think a powwow is specific to just the group of people, but it's, it's always open to the public. That's the celebration. So I encourage people to, to do that. There's a lot of things that you can learn as you go as far as what's culturally relevant. And different tribes are doing different things. We have our fire ceremonies at the Waccamaw, and I think we're maybe one, possibly two tribes that actually do that. The equinox and solstices, besides the powwows, and these are also open to the public. Although people think Native Americans, uh, indigenous people are really closed off. It's trust, and that is definitely mm-hmm. an issue because of the past. But there's also a very openness. So again, someone coming to 
participate in, in say, summer solstice, they're going to be welcome and they're going to be invited. So that part of it is kind of counter to what society thinks or what people perceive. Again, it's kind of that story written by a certain perspective or a certain type of person. And assumptions that are made as well. Well, I said I was going to bring up federal funding earlier in our conversation, so bring it up now because it fits with this conversation we're having. But right now there there are billions of dollars available for resilience work and habitat restoration and quote-unquote green infrastructure. And there is a significant amount of this funding placing a strong emphasis on engaging with marginalized, underserved, underrepresented communities, as well as indigenous peoples, though federally recognized tribes often, as we discussed earlier. But I, I wanted to talk about, and we kind of got into it, but you know, advice for organizations, for people that are interested in this funding, that want to meaningfully, intentionally engage with communities, you know, what are the, the key factors to that? We've touched on several, I think, here already, um, relationship building and trust building and bringing and providing, building that capacity, I think. Um you know, what What else comes to mind when we're thinking about this? I think one very big part of it, which I'm learning in, in some of the communities, is, is really listening and understanding that the communities have a lot to provide as far as input. They've been living in the community, some of them for generations, and they have the unique perspective of understanding the history and the history does help us to learn, to learn from the past in order to adapt for the future. And that is sometimes, and I say left out of the conversation, it's instead of going in and saying, okay, here's your problem and we're here to fix it mm-hmm. is what, what is it that you're seeing is issues within your community. And then how can we be supportive and build the capacity to do it? Because I am absolutely not a person and it probably ties back to me being forced to put my own worm on the hook. You know, okay, I'm going to show you how it's done and then I'll be alongside you to do it. But you have to learn how to put the worm on the hook. And I think that's our responsibility. And oftentimes what happens is it's coming in, identifying the problem and providing the solution. And it may not be at all what the community sees as what's needed. And then maybe even the route of how that happens. We're really looking at sometimes these things are happening so fast. It's that, again, they got in a car and they drove and there it is. And the community is spinning around going, what just happened? And then having to kind of fight to still be in that space of being able to have um, a voice or then they get in and they're part of that conversation, but there really wasn't any intentional listening or there was never any real effort to shift the plans that have already been laid out. And I'm not talking from like an NGO, but I'm talking stakeholders that, I mean, the, the people that are in the decision-making positions, 
So then it's like you reinforce that whole idea of, I don't really have a voice here. What's the point in even doing this? Mm-hmm. And I see that and it frustrates me because mm-hmm. we are, again, put it on paper. This is what we're going to do. I call it willful compliance mm-hmm. when it's, this is what we have to do. It's not what we want to do. It's what we have to do. So we check the box and, and that, that shuts down conversations, you know, it does. and it assumes that a community has nothing to offer in the conversation. I'm frustrated because I recognize this and see this. And I know that this is from the past. This is a history that's carrying over. And it's part of that construct that's been developed for so long. And change for some is difficult. And it's uncomfortable. And it might even be scary. But the reality is, is that if you're going to say equity work, equity has to be equitable. It likely will mean making adjustments and shifting how you normally operate. If you're in a project, it's easy to fall into, unfortunately, this is the timeline and this is the scope of the funding and this is what needs to be done and this is when it needs to be done by, right? There's these like project constraints and work constraints that we think we have to work in. And sometimes we do, right? Sometimes they're valid, but sometimes they're systems that could change or processes that could change if we were more intentional about it, I think. Right. And and then also it's if it was developed with a specific, say, frame of reference that you're normally doing this, we're not doing this work is beyond what has been traditionally been getting done. So our responsibility is to shift and and I say we, yeah, again, that whole process, it kind of has to be mucked up a little bit in order to get things where, okay, you know, you just can't operate that way. Yeah. At this point in time, there's a lot of variables now in play. And if this is really truly equity work, you have to shift accordingly and change the processes. One thing I recognize is some of the like you just identified timelines to get work done, deliverables. And I completely understand there has to be some kind of frame of reference for time to provide, but also what about that time that it takes to build relationships that haven't been established? I remember saying something like, what are you supposed to do? Go knock on somebody's door and say, I'm here to, and you can't do that. And it does take time. It takes conversation. It takes the trust building. It takes, I'm really truly here because I want this collaborative relationship, this collaborative work to happen. Um, Not, I'm just checking a box here to get this and check. Okay. It's done because that's not equity. That's not meaningfully and intentionally engaging with communities where they're at. I think one of the best things that in the time that I've been with American Rivers, it wasn't installing rain gardens in Bucksport. It was the celebration of Bucksport. It was a community day that we put together to celebrate Bucksport and learn about their culture, about the community. 
Yeah, no, I get that. And, you know, even for well-meaning people like myself that wants to do nature-based solutions places, well, it's not going to be a successful project if the community doesn't want that nature-based solution or didn't feel engaged in the process and then is not going to care for and maintain that work into the future, right? There has to be that kind of holistic and uh, community. Yeah, is this, is this what they really want? And then it's, I think the other part of it, which we often miss is, really truly making certain that we are communicating so that understanding is 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 the why why is a rain garden really going to benefit how is that going to benefit like really truly relaying that in a in a way that there is not just the aesthetics and then also really investing in what that is for the community because without really seeing results from the work that's done, without understanding and being able to have impact, the work means nothing. And it looks good on our part, but it means nothing. I want to go back to see the, the, the we installed one rain garden at a community member's home because the house had been just completely inundated during Florence was rebuilt up on six foot, still, still potentially going to have a lot of flooding issues when, well, that's great, but now your, your yard is a small pond. The woman was really happy about that. And one of the things that resulted from that is many people wanted that as well in there. And, and then you have to say, well, the funding wasn't there to do as much as we wanted to do. And then it falls flat. So impact for one to demonstrate that it actually is beneficial, but how do you actually work to have community instead of being like, well, that person got that. Why didn't I? Yeah. And that's human nature. It's the, you know, well, what about me? But it's something I struggle with, with our, some of our projects, you know, we do pilot projects to showcase it works or try to do one big scale transformational thing and hope that that picks up steam and gets other projects going. But you worry sometimes and it can feel like it's a one-off. And if there's not the sustaining funding and opportunity and engagement to keep that work going, it, it does not feel as meaningful. Right. Exactly. So you're, you're understanding where I'm coming from. It's not a this was wrong for us to do this. It what obviously was not. It was the steam has to keep coming. There has to be, especially when you're talking equity, it's the personification of inequity within your community. This place here, but not yours. Yes. You know, right. so right. it's it's where I say had a little bit of a struggle with and and being okay, so this is how this works. And but then I also realized it's not a reflection of the organization I work for. It's the system that's set up and designed in such a way that this is just the way things have been done. That's right. Yeah. And so there's where it goes back to how can we shift this? How can we muck things up and say, no, this is not the way we're going to do this anymore? Yes. We're going to do this differently. In my mind, I'm thinking, I don't want it to come across like, oh, I checked a box. I did an equity yes. project in this one community, but that's the one thing I did, right? But how do we change the system so we're capable to 
be working with these communities and doing so many more, right? So much more of this work. You're working with the community to build trust. You're working with the community to show this is equitable engagement. We're really going to be able to achieve certain things, but you have to temper it with, but it's going to be the buy-in on the other side. Mm-hmm. The buy-in for funders to say, yeah, this is what needs to be done. This is how this needs to be done. And that's been the realization that I went, okay, so now I see how it works. That's not really a good process. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so how can we change this? It's a problem. And I will say, you know, positively, I do think there's a shift in that through funding sources, through donors, recognizing because it's been traditionally like I want to donate or you know provide a grant for something in the ground tangible that I can see Um, but there's there's starting to be a shift towards I'm willing to provide funding for time and capacity of people to build these relationships and do these planning processes with communities and we know down the road it will lead to a project. So we are seeing more more of that. But I do think those timelines and those deliverables can still be significant choke points in all this. Yes. And, and here's a really unique concept. As an Indigenous person, it's seven generations yet unborn. I'm doing something today I may not get to see. I am going to have faith that if I'm throwing seeds out there, I may not get to see the harvest. And I may not even be one that goes along afterwards and cultivates and waters and does all this other, you know, this process. It may be just my role is to do this and and others will come along after. And I have to be okay with that. But that buy-in, woo, okay. And that part of it is like, I come with this concept, it's a foreign concept in a society that is almost immediate, I'd say immediate gratification, but it's not really so much that is it's immediate results. That's a real challenge. But if you start, you have to have this belief that if you're, if what you're doing, you know, is a good thing, you are making that choice today to dramatically change tomorrow. We just may not get to be here to see the tomorrow. Yeah, I think that there are people in the past and I look at some of those that did work that actually ended up lives lost through that and certainly didn't get to see what they did, how that impacted people, but they certainly did. I'm just really glad and thankful that they didn't throw in the towel or say, no, I need a, I need an actionable thing to show that this was uh, a good investment. When I I think about work that's being done, I mean, still, you don't stop, obviously. You have to work within the system that's established, but also what can, can we do to help change things that they'll, you know, actually be better in the future. Building relationships is the key, and that's across the board with nature, with people, all the way. So you're a member of the National PFAS Contamination Coalition, and I know you're a passionate advocate for research and education on PFAS-related issues. 
PFAS is an acronym I just recently started hearing. Can you tell me more about this issue and what's the connection between the environment and people within this issue? So PFAS is perm polyfluoroalkyl substances. And the brief history is it was developed in the 40s for use on the Manhattan Project as a surfactant, accidentally developed through research in a lab, and I believe it was a refrigerant something Hmm. um, mishap, and um, in the realization that it actually could be uh, utilized for Teflon coating on pans to make them nonstick. And that is the beginning of how they entered into the environment. Later, certain things happened to develop what's called aqueous film forming foam. And that was in response to a fire that took place on board. Um, I believe it was a, a, it might've been a battleship or aircraft carrier um, that took a lot of lives. And this um, firefighting foam could put the petroleum fire out rather quickly, which saves lives. So good things, you know, women wanted nonstick pans. It made things easier, easier for cleanup. You certainly want to save lives, but what was not understood is the impact, impact to humans and impact to the environment. So as more uses came through this and more types of PFAS were developed with their uses over decades, it became known that they were PBTs, persistent, bioaccumulative, and toxic at low levels. Some of the studies that were done were by the manufacturers, but this wasn't disclosed. And so for a number of decades, with the waste from the manufacturing process being disposed of into waterways, it became something that now exists in about 99% of human blood. There are diseases that it's linked to, and that resulted from one attorney who went into Parkersburg, West Virginia, in response to a farmer, um, Mr. Tennant. He had cows that were dying, teeth rotting out, seemed like they had brain defects and tumors and things on their body. And he discovered that it was likely the water that they were drinking from a small stream that was connected to a landfill owned by Mm -hmm. DuPont in Parkersburg. That attorney picked up the ball from there. He found out that there was knowledge of it, knowledge of the PFOA. He didn't know what that was. Most scientists didn't know what, what that was. And so it took close to a decade by the time it was settled. And there was a study, one of the largest human health studies in our nation called um, through a C8 science panel that made the determination that it was very hazardous. These were toxic chemicals. So this was nearly two decades ago. And at the present time, we're still looking at maximum contamination limits. There were health advisory limits implemented about a decade ago. And And yet it was only for uh, a limited number. We are looking at all of the the list of the PFAS and their analytes as probably in the neighborhood of 12,000. So there's so many multiple uses and 
things that we absolutely would need to have. So there's uses for in the manufacturing process of these chemicals that we would want to continue to have access to and and need, and then probably in maybe smaller amounts. But the primary issue of in our water is the part that is not good because Mm -hmm. now it's also in the fish. And that's been determined that we have fish that we should not be eating because they accumulate PFAS in their, in their flesh. Then we ingest, we are seeing farms that have application of sludge, biosolid or the waste that comes from wastewater treatment plants that are applied to farms. And then of course, maybe the grains fed to the cows that lead to the milk and Mm. the milk is contaminated. The soil's contaminated. It's such a huge problem. It's truly an elephant. Mm -hmm. And, And now we are here. So how does that connect to the environment and people? It absolutely connects in so many ways. Consumer products, we literally use things that we think no harm, no foul. Microwave popcorn, you know, things, uh, pizza boxes, you know, the food packaging um, that we don't know if this chemical, which does end up in our bodies. So it's not in cosmetics. It's not just from drinking water. It's not just from... Uh, ingesting fish. It's that we have a high occurrence of exposure and there's really only one solution. And that would be to find alternatives to uh, stop the manufacturing and find better alternatives. And my philosophy on the issue is that people are resilient when they need to be. If they don't have to be, they won't be. And so the resiliency comes from adaptation. It's, it's that part of we can adapt, but if you're not being made to adapt or you don't see the need to adapt because there's nothing saying, well, you know, you need to probably change. You won't. And society just will continue on and there will be increased health issues. There Mm -hmm. will be certain things that we're so used to. And and then guess what? Then we'll have to adapt. So if that gives you a little frame of reference in the environment and how it impacts people, um, the thing that is being done and that is really hopeful is there are research universities researching. There are researches being done to understand it better, which I think is the crux of, of, you know, identifying solutions. You first have to identify the problem really well, but it's also the studies and understanding what can we do. And, and it's kind of a, everyone's called to pick up a piece of this and say, okay, what is it that I can help to figure out the problem? Or, you know, what are, what are ways we can get it out of the environment? Mm-hmm. What, you know, safely, because there have been development of ways that are like, that's not safe. It's just moving, <laughs> moving the marble from one place on the table to the other. It's kind of like climate change when it first was being discussed. And I think it was Gore who brought it up and was not very well received. Um, there's still people that it's, it's so hard to see what this is 
and then mm-hmm. make the threads of connection to what does it mean for the environment and people. I've been actively involved in that, even helping the National Academy of Science and to develop a physician protocol. How do we have this discussion and what's the the process for identifying in this in in humans in the human health aspect? Yeah, one of those seemingly invisible but gigantic issues. <laughs> right. And it's so much easier to focus on the plastic pollution, which is it's a problem. Plastic mm-hmm. pollution is definitely an issue, a visible issue where, you know, we can rally behind it. It's a lot harder to rally behind something that's not seen and not very easily understood. I love your definition of resilience and resilience is the willingness to adapt, which is more of a proactive manner. But if you're forced into that adaptation, it's much more reactive and probably less effective. But yeah, most definitely. And sometimes it's just seeing it. I might likely have to. And keeping that at the forefront in your dealing with life, the valleys and the mountains, and that this conversation about, oh, you feel like you're going and you're moving along through life and then you're knocked down. And it's like, well, then just expect to have the possibility of being knocked down and mm-hmm. it won't come as a shock to you or a surprise and just know that, well, I'm going to be maybe knocked down that I will get back up. And, you know, once you have enough of those experiences, you recognize you're pretty resilient. You do have the ability to get back up. And I think as human species that we can all do that and in our own personal lives, and then looking at also the opportunities of growth during those times, because you always have that opportunity through hardship to grow. Well, let's go to a a fun question. If you had a billion dollars at your disposal, how would you use it to support nature? I think probably first and foremost would be reaching our young people, getting them outside, getting more engagement opportunities for our young people, especially young people that don't have those opportunities or have been disconnected from them. Yeah, you're kind of trying to roll back time a little bit. And then make nature more of a a positive experience rather than kind of those threads carried forward as not having positive experiences. It's really difficult. I would really want to see efforts invested in undoing harm that has been created through generations of Mm -hmm. disenfranchisement. And I say disenfranchisement with nature. Like we can all just go out for a walk. We can all, but... I mean, we can talk about the space of technology, but there are young people who have had formed for them a disengagement from nature because it might have been threatening more. It might have equated to bad memories and that generation kind of carried forward. So there was this breach that happened. So connecting young people especially disadvantaged people of color back into nature and and having that really be meaningful to shift that part. And then as far as really the on the ground, when it com- comes to restoring habitat, some of it is just, you know, stop developing. 
policy change that actually would be based on, I say common sense, because it's not even science. <laughs> you know, it's common sense. People that lived in swamps primarily, they were there because they were hiding. Mm. People that lived in areas that, you know, this is wetland area. It wasn't because that was a, I, I think it's a good idea to live here because you had so many disadvantages. The only advantage was to be able to hide easily because the majority of people weren't going to go into swamps to find you. And so we're still in this place of we can dredge and fill the swamp or we can manipulate this man-made structure to be able to to build there and then so now what do we what do we met with we have to do restoration because we've impacted the habitat yep. so it stop doing that first policy change that would actually start really protecting wetlands and i know that's like almost a taboo thing when we just had the sacket decision but now more than ever, it's got to be a primary focus because the wetlands themselves are filters for our rivers. They're, you know, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here about all of this, but it's so important. And then when you think about if they're doing that, what do we know about how they actually might help heal, not just protect, but heal rivers? So we don't know that because that hasn't really been studied fully enough to really mm. totally understand as it filters, can it be filtering out something like PFAS? Some places are really doing green infrastructure well, and and we can learn from them. So it's not that you have to reinvent the wheel. We can learn from the places that are doing it well. Bring that with our own obvious modifications, because we might look a little bit different than Minnesota as far as climate, but how that can be replicated in a meaningful way for South Carolina, for the Southeast. And then as far as adaptation is, is we, we have to be willing to adapt. We have to be willing to change. And that shift, I don't know how to do that other than just to keep saying the same thing, just keep beating on the drum. Well, what's something that we can all do to positively impact our environment? I think it's it, it starts with being mindful of the environment that you're in, wherever it is. And then again, positively impacting the environment means engaging with it, bringing people that may not have opportunities to be a part of that. We're doing something at our tribal grounds that's, I hope, will be making a small difference, small, small track of land. It's, it's not a huge area certainly not going to spotlight true successful conservation but it's a it's a seed and that is just to bring people out to see all of the benefits and why it's important to have this floodplain connected to this river and why you know one small little swamp can be significant and why community gardening is really beneficially functional system for people. And those are ways I think that we can do things to have positive impacts 
because again, it's not a, I'm going to do this right now at this minute. And this is the visual and the deliverable or the actionable, whatever it's moving that needle and then bringing some of the traditional ecological knowledge that are that's threaded through our culture. Some of the things I think back over the course of time of being able to realize that nature all around us has properties and things what are there to help us to be resilient. And and somewhere along the line we made choices to, we're going to do it better. I think that one of the questions you have is what gives you hope for the future. And I think yep, that's, that's my last one for you. That's what gives me hope for the future is that there are still Ronnie Floyd's, Craig Sasser's, and their people that are influencing me and I hope I'm influencing them and, and, um, and we're learning from each other that I think will continue putting seeds out there and doing the work that they're doing. And we'll keep doing this, moving this effort forward. So that's what gives me hope for the future. And for people like you, all of people that are working in, in conservation, I think there has to be a heart for it. You, You really, you can't do this work and be just... I'm doing it because it's a job. This is not, this is not job related type of (laughs) because it it's way beyond, you know, most of the time what you ever expected it to become. And certainly that takes commitment and you absolutely know that you're up against so much that seems to push back. So you're, essentially warriors in a way of like standing on this, but then also having to be good deliberators. There's so many different hats that have to be worn. Ideally communicators, deliberators, scientists, educators. Well, thanks, Cheryl. I I mean, and thank you. I mean, you, you give me a lot of hope and I really appreciated not just our conversation today, but the opportunity for me to get to know you better and and work with you as, as um over the last year or so and like I said I think you give me you do you give me a lot of visuals and I'm going to reflect on this for a little bit after our conversation today and you know think about the thread that's woven through me with the generations before and after me and I'm sure our listeners will too so thank you so much Cheryl for for all you've given us today yeah thank you Liz I appreciate it um was very happy to be a part of this. Thanks for tuning in. Conversing with Nature is a podcast of the Nature-Based Exchange and is supported by funding from Honda. To learn more, visit our website at www.naturebasedexchange.org. I'll be back next time with another guest so we can continue learning from nature. Until then, go make some memories outside. Thank you.